welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, you are in for a treat. A recurring guest, Dr. Mikhail Sikiris, comes on Healthcare Unfiltered to discuss his new book that he released in September, Drugs and the FDA Safety, Efficacy, and the Public Trust. Mikhail is a professor of medicine and the chief of the Division of Hematology at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. He is a former chair of the uh, ODAC, uh, which is going to be a committee that we will discuss and dissect during today's podcast. I have hosted Mikael on Healthcare Unfiltered previously, certainly a prolific researcher, writer, and an amazing human being. Uh, Mikael uh, has published a prior book, When Blood Breaks Down, which I actually reviewed, and I interviewed him about this book. And prior to even publishing that book, I followed a lot of Mikael's writings at the New York Times and other outlets. And really what struck me the most is the humanity in these writings. The ability to connect with patients, families, the ability to connect with a general reader is a talent that not every writer possesses, especially those of us who write uh, scientific research and scientific papers. So it takes a whole lot of a particular talent and capabilities to be able to reach the uh, common reader and the common individual. So I've actually uh, invited Mikael on today's podcast because I wanted to know why he decided to write this book. Uh, I want to learn more about the details from the book. I actually also will be uh, writing a book review on, uh, on this book. So I really urge you to take a look at you are going to enjoy this podcast because you're going to actually get into the brains of a writer prior to writing from the conception times until the writing and then after that. Uh, this will be an excellent hour that you will spend with us on Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm grateful for my guests to providing me with the opportunity to actually read the book before it was even released, but I also did buy it. So you have to go in Amazon or wherever you buy your books and you'll buy this book and I promise you it will be a money well spent. So I did actually pre-order the book when it came out, but I was also provided with a copy so I could review it prior to this podcast. Uh, before I air the episode I taped with Mikael Sikiris on this podcast, I urge you to find it on all podcast outlets. And don't forget to visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, and write a brief review because this will allow other folks to find this podcast. Don't forget to watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, uh, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or in, on Instagram, Shadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered to provide any opinions, feedback, or ideas. And if you are a loyal listener, like many of you out there, you can absolutely reach out to me and demand the famous 
Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast t-shirt. And I will gladly send that to you. This is just my gift to you for being loyal to Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, Dr. Mikhail Sekiris about his new book on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, here we are. Uh, he's back. The man who uh, everybody contends he doesn't know how to spell his first name. Mikhail, what, what's the deal? I mean, everybody I talk to, they say like, this is, you need to spell your name differently. What, you know, what are we going to do about that? Well, I get that feedback a lot from Joe Mikhail, notable <laughs> multiple myeloma expert. And, you know, I've trash talked him already for a number of other interviews. Um, he and I are, are extremely good friends. Um, despite the fact that he feels a little threatened by me, uh, but I think he is. he'll come over. I mean, really. I mean, of course <laughs> he is, and I'm 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 on your side. I mean, hopefully Joe can hear this, and, and let's see if he can actually up his game. <laughs> so, uh, Mikael, th- thank you so much just for contest actually for context because this will air in in a, in a couple of, in a few weeks. Um, we're taping this on uh, the Jewish New Year, so Happy New Year. Thank you. Um, Thank you, and Tova. Uh, and then we're also taping this um, a week after you had the shoulder surgery. So I really, I, I appreciate you doing this because I can only imagine that you probably still have a lot of pain. So speedy recovery and appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you so much. It, as people say, it's it stinks to get old, but it's better than the alternative. So hey, you're an athlete. You bike all the time. <laughs> It's true. This is it's it's really true. Um, and you know, a buddy of mine who's actually a lawyer, not a doctor, but I think he has a great theory that if you're athletic during your entire life, you probably get things like shoulder tears, which is what I had—a rotator cuff tear—that um, are partial, and it just takes very little to push it over the edge to something that needs surgery. So, thank you so well, much for your knowledge. Compared to cancer, it's no big deal. I know. <laughs> Well, speaking of which, so first of all, the reason, the purpose of this, you've been on this podcast before. I'm always very, very grateful for you coming in. We've, we've tackled a variety of topics in the past, but today really, it's about your new book. Obviously, I, you know, I'm a big fan. I, before you actually got your first book out, because I was, you, you have a very nice way of writing essays that really, uh, they're very, they, they touch the, the uh, they're very hum, humane. But what's unique about them, in my view, is that you're able to reach the common individual person that doesn't have to be a scientist or a physician to understand them. And I do think not every researcher or a clinician can do that, right? I mean, you know, being able to write, you're not writing for blood or JCO, you're writing for public. It's challenging. I mean, if you're a writer and you are a doctor, and try to be brave enough to write for the for the lay press. First of all, it's much more competitive, and uh, it's you wind up leaving yourself much more vulnerable, because if you come at it at a level that you would you would discuss things with your colleagues, uh, it really won't have any impact. So you have to respect your audience and um, have, I think, a little bit of confidence to be able to explain things at multiple levels. Now, I I think we may have talked about this before. I come from a family of English majors. So when I was in medical school, I would kind of, you know, put on my shield of complicated medical terms to talk to my parents about what I was learning. And they would really, 
you know, berate me about it and say, listen, you don't have to use those highfalutin terms. You're talking to us. Just explain it in plain English so that we understand it. And I've always carried that with me, I think, in how I do most presentations. So even when I'm at conferences, um, I try to explain it at a level that anyone can understand. And I think if we're not good at communicating at a level that transcends expertise, we're, we're really not doing our job. I mean, one of the most valuable things that we do as physicians, as nurses, as pharmacists is communicate and explain these complicated concepts in a way that people understand uh, and that they can then make informed decisions about. I've always said there are some of the our colleagues who are really, you know, they're super smart. I mean, they've contributed so much to the field. But they get on the podium and they're just there's a disconnect. Like I I can't I don't always understand everything they say. There's the other ones who can really uh, get the message. But we're not talking science, although a little bit of science. We're talking about the, this new book. So um, the title of your book is the FDA and drugs and safety and all of these things. So you're gonna tell us the title of the book, but but what? Why did you decide to embark on writing this book? And when did you really start the process? So thank you so much. The title of the book is Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy, and the Public's Trust. And I, I've been noodling about writing this book for a decade. What prompted it was, as, as you may recall, I was a member of the FDA's Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee for five years, and I chaired it for two. And during that time, I was actually on the panel that considered the drug Avastin, which had a label for metastatic breast cancer. And we had a couple of meetings about this drug, um, but there were different meetings than we usually had for ODAC. Usually when you have an ODAC meeting, a drug is brought before ODAC, and then we have to weigh the data on the drug's relative balance of safety and efficacy and decide whether we would vote to approve the drug. Now, of course, as, a, as an FDA committee, we don't approve drugs. The FDA approves drugs, but we make that recommendation to the FDA. And about 90% of the time, the FDA follows our recommendation. When Avastin came before, it was a, a, it was a different story. It had been approved under accelerated approval, and that requires that there be a confirmatory trial demonstrating the same magnitude of clinical benefit that was seen initially, and hopefully extending that to, for example, an improvement in overall survival. But the confirmatory trials for Avastin fell flat. And in fact, not only did they not show an improvement in overall survival for Avastin uh, compared to control arms, but the magnitude of progression-free survival shrank. So this was a very contentious meeting when we first met. And then after we made our recommendations, uh, the manufacturer has a legal right to say to FDA, you know what, we don't want to withdraw our drug. We're demanding a hearing. So we actually had a hearing. It was like a court case where it was the FDA's lawyers versus the manufacturer's lawyers. And we were the jury, six of us, who voted on whether or not we felt Avastin should be removed from the market. Um, and it was one of those scenes, Chadi, that was straight out of a movie. Uh, we were brought to FDA headquarters, um, snuck in through an alternate entrance so we didn't have to face all the protesters. And when we actually made our decision, um, armed guards rushed to us 
to escort us out a back entrance of the FDA to waiting tinted window limousines to whisk us away. So ever since then, I've always wondered why hasn't anyone written a book about this? Because you can look at this trial um, in which the FDA was involved as the ultimate test of how well the FDA works or in how it doesn't work. And that kind of set me on the way uh, towards writing the, the book Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy, and the Public's Trust. And in my mind, this whole debate about safety and efficacy and the relative balance gets to how much the public trusts the FDA and other public health agencies, which we've seen played out in real time through the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, you do actually uh, have scenes in the book that are fascinating, and you 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 paint the picture very well. Where literally, I felt I was in a litigation trial for sure uh, towards the end. But be before we we get there, the um, was so you've been here at this for a decade. Did COVID play a role? Like because of COVID, you thought and the FDA and the EUA, all of these things, was that like, was there something that tipped you? This is the time to do it? It's another great question. I, I think that writing this book, um, which I did during the COVID pandemic was kind of my response to COVID in a way. Um, I find writing to be both a uh, therapeutic, a way of processing, uh, but also a way to keep engaged, particularly when we were so isolated, right? You could argue that one of the most isolating activities you could do is writing a book. Yeah. And you'll hear about the loneliness of writing, right? Yeah. Um, when it's in a, a very, very long form like this, this was, I think this book was about uh, 80,000, 85,000 words. So I think that was part of it, Chadi. And, and part of it was really what motivated me to do it was... Um, over the past few years, you've seen this almost juggernaut of accelerated approvals by the FDA of mostly cancer drugs. And these drugs are approved based on data that sometimes from single arm studies that doesn't have an endpoint of overall survival. And then we as practitioners, as medical hematologists and oncologists, are face, stuck facing patients trying to explain why we would or wouldn't recommend a drug without a lot of data supporting our recommendation. So as these approvals have been coming more and more over the past, particularly over the past five years, um, I've been struggling myself in how I've been treating patients with how to communicate this message about drugs that are approved under accelerated approval um, while we're waiting for a confirmatory trial to really show how well these drugs work or don't work. When you wrote the book, Mikhail, and we all know there are you 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 have to decide who your target audience is because you obviously tailor sometimes the language as well as you know what you are going to describe based on your target audience. Who who do you want to read the book? Who's your target audience? I I, I honestly start with my parents. Uh, <laughs> I do. They, they will I, never approve. Come on. <laughs> my I will tell you, my mom read the book and she liked it. And you might think that that's kind of an easy win, but not with my mother. She would have told me if there were problems with the book. So, um, well, we could tell actually. There's a segment in the book that uh, I'm glad your mom is doing well, but you do actually go personal when you describe um, how she was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I could tell she's a feisty woman who is not going to tell you something that is not good just because you're her son. 
Yeah. Um, so, so you're, you're right. I did talk about that in the book because this also happened over the past few years while I was noodling about this, this topic, my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, and I wrote about this actually in a couple of essays that wound up appearing in the New York times a little bit after this occurred. And, um, uh, at the time it was a, it was a rocky road. Uh, she was diagnosed in Rhode Island, which is where I'm from. I was living in Cleveland at the time and her initial scans showed that she was a stage um, 3B, a non-small cell lung cancer. It was only after um, I had a lot of difficulty trying to help manage her care from a distance that I said, why don't you just come to Cleveland where, you know, I can help facilitate getting you in for the appointments that you need. And it was in the course of that, that uh, we actually discovered that her initial PET scan was a false positive And she was in fact a stage one and resectable non-small cell lung cancer. So, it was going through this and going through the machinations of thinking about her treatment that I thought a lot about how patients think about going on to a clinical trial. And part of this book is to present a, a patient who goes on to a clinical trial, how that person makes decisions, and then how incredibly challenging it is at times to figure out whether adverse events that occur are due to a drug or not due to a drug in a patient and how that then feeds into eventually what may be a label for a drug and how we have to weigh the risks and benefits of treating a patient um, when we weren't primarily involved in a study. You do that actually very well and we'll get into it. I have some questions about that as well. Um, but before we get there, just have a couple of things and then I want to go into the ODAC thing. Because you talk a lot about the FDA in the in the in the process, and I, you know, for all the policy researchers out there who are listening to this or are going to read my review, it's really a, a great way of describing this. Did you have to get permission from the FDA? Like, is there because you're talking about a governmental agency, but you know, you could write what you want. I just when you put that in a book, do you actually need clearance from the FDA to write about your experience in the ODAC? Everything's public, Chadi. So everything, one of the beautiful things about the way we make decisions about drugs in the United States is that it's transparent and open and occurs in real time. So, uh, for example, I was on an FDA panel um, last week from, from when we were recording this on a couple of drugs, and uh, it was live. And at one point, there were technical issues, and the FDA actually said, you know, we're going to pause discussion right now because the public can't hear what we're saying until we restore their connection so they can be part of it. So everything is live, everything is public, and everything that I pulled for the book um, actually were from transcripts that are online that anyone can can have access to if they if they care to. That's excellent. So let's start by the ODAC. I, I think so for, for, of course, you, me and you are not going to give the entire book away because we'd like people to read it, but we're going to give enough to tease folks. Um, really, the book centers about your experience as an ODAC member. As you take us through the story of the Avastin debacle in breast cancer and um, and you go back and forth and, and you know you do that really beautifully, but I want to start with the ODAC um, because you do actually spend quite a bit as you write. Uh, you know, you know, I'm being asked to render an opinion on a breast cancer drug, uh, which is Avastin, 
was being, you know, for approval in metastatic breast cancer. But you're a leukemia guy. I mean, you you haven't really treated breast cancer patients. And Wyndham Wilson, that you bring him up as the chair of the ODAC committee, he's a lymphoma guy and, and all of that. Take us through the process of how ODAC committee members are being selected. And, and do you think it's fair for folks who don't know much about breast cancer to decide on the fate of a breast cancer drug? Uh, so how is the selection made? Do you apply? Do you or people just call you and say, are you interested? Do you get paid for your time? Uh, well, talk us through the process a little bit. I, I love these questions because they get to the nuts and bolts of how we live our lives. And you you wonder in real time what somebody actually, actually has to go through to wind up on a committee and function on that committee. So um, um, I was recommended to be a member of ODAC, uh, I believe by a patient advocacy group. And patient advocacy groups can recommend people and so can former members of ODAC. Um, so I might have had a recommendation also from a former member of ODAC. That then leads to the FDA sending an email saying, are you interested in this? And if so, send us your CV. So I, I went through that process. I then must have cleared some sort of hurdle because I was invited to come to FDA headquarters for an interview. So I met and to give a talk. So I gave a talk and fielded questions and that was to a larger group of, of FDA members um, and then had a group interview and then had a one-on-one -on -one interview with Rick Pasher, uh, who heads up the uh, oncologic um, uh, branch. Uh, now I think it's called the Oncology Center of Excellence. He heads that. And um, where they ask questions about uh, my background and my um, uh, involvement with clinical trials. And also they start to get to conflicts of interest and say, if you have relationships with companies, are you willing to give those up while you're a member of ODAC? And um, that I think what Rick liked in particular about my background is I, I do have a master's of science in clinical epidemiology and my specific focus was pharmacoepidemiology. So I have a specific interest and focus that lent itself to the FDA and to considerations of a critical appraisal of clinical trials. Um, I then was um, nominated to be on ODAC, and then you have to fill out, I'm, I'm not exaggerating here, probably 30 to 40 pages of government forms. Um, everything about your background, um, your conflicts of interest, you have to be cleared if you go through security clearances to then be named a special government employee or SGE. Then when you're invited on an individual panel, you have to go through the um, conflict of interest screening all over again, not just for the drug under consideration. So let's say you're looking at a drug that's manufactured by Pfizer to treat uh, GI cancers. So uh, obviously if I've received money for being part of an advisory um, committee to Pfizer for that drug, that would be a direct conflict. But it would also be a direct conflict if I received money for another drug that competes with that drug from another company or even for something completely different for another company that manufactures a drug that competes with that Pfizer GI cancer drug. So imagine the level of conflict of interest training you have to go through. That extends not only to me, but to family members and to clinical trials in which you're an investigator or sub-investigator, where you have to figure out how much money is given, not just 
you know, if it's directly to you as part of an advisory committee, but to your institution for participation in a clinical trial. So after you go through all that conflict screening, you start to see why it's really hard to get an expert in breast cancer onto an FDA panel that's considering a breast cancer drug. So you could argue, okay, well, that doesn't have disease experts on that. Is that really fair? Um, but there's a flip side to this where maybe it's better to not be an expert uh, in a specific cancer on an FDA panel. So I, I hope you'll join me just for a second and go through this thought experiment. When I was trained to be an oncologist, I once tried to use one patient's experience to justify the treatment I wanted to give another patient. And afterward, my advisor at the time, it, it was actually George Canella said, Dana Farber, who's a, you know, incredibly famous uh, oncologist developing treatments for Hodgkin lymphoma. He called me aside and said in his very George Canellis way, the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> so of course, what he meant by, by that is that we may trick ourselves into thinking we're rigorously applying scientific data to inform our decisions when we're really being driven by emotions surrounding their recent clinical success or failure. So I think people can similarly be tricked when they're serving on a high level FDA panel. So if I'd recently, for example, if I were a breast cancer specialist and had recently been treating a breast cancer patient with a Vastin and she had a fabulous outcome, no side effects, her tumor shrunk, you can imagine how this might influence my vote the following week on whether to keep a drug on the market. What if instead this same patient suffered liver failure, developed sepsis with a bacterial infection because the drug had tanked her immune system? How do you think I would vote then about the drug? So I, I do think there's some value to having distance from being a specialist. And I'll throw in one other reason why I think there's some value to, to having that sort of distance. Chadi, you and I both treat patients and we know what it's like to have only a limited number of tools in our toolbox and to exhaust all those and then to have to face somebody and say, I'm sorry, I don't have any treatments left, right? It's probably the most awful experience that we have. So if I'm a breast cancer specialist and I'm invited to a breast cancer panel and there's a drug there that, you know, I'm not really sure that it works that well, I'm willing to accept the side effects to it and it gives me one more tool to add to that toolbox, I'll probably make that recommendation because I hate having that conversation with my patients, just like you do. So... You know, that would be my rationale for it. I, I will tell you that when I'm sitting on panels where it's about something that doesn't involve leukemia, um, I do read up beforehand on kind of standard treatments and get a sense of the lay of the land. I think it's it, it's not that difficult to translate basic principles of oncology management from one cancer to another. And I do appreciate having a little bit of distance to just consider the data when we're voting on whether or not to approve a drug. Yeah, and, and and I could say you really um, you, you explain um, that your thought process in the book very well when it comes to the ODAC selection committee. Um, but is, is the ODAC so? It's a five year term usually on ODAC, and during that time, you actually are responsible to advise uh, about advising the FDA for any drug, or is there an ODAC committee for each disease? Like, how does how, for, for those who are listening who may not really be familiar, 
of how ODAC actually works. Were you for five years responsible to for advising the FDA on any oncology drug? It's a, it's a great question. So usually it's about a three or three and a half year term. And then my term was extended twice for one year terms each when I became chair. So um, the, and then any time the FDA decides to convene an oncologic drugs advisory panel, the standing members of that committee are approached um, to be part of that panel. And sometimes there are so many conflicts of interest, the FDA will then go to outside people who aren't standing members of ODAC to become temporary voting members of the committee as special government employees. So I served on ODAC years ago, but last week I was asked as an external person to be a special government employee and temporary voting member for that panel. Got it. And you do get paid for your time, I hope, just a little bit. I mean, you, 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 uh, I love the scene when you and Rick, I believe, you're going to the cafeteria and you're trying to get a sandwich. And, and, and he said, uh, well, I can't really pay for your sandwich, but you can really expense it. It's like, you know, it's okay. I'll just pay for it. I'll save the tax dollar money. You I did a chuckle when I read that. I could totally imagine the scene at the cafeteria, but uh, hopefully there's some, some compensation for your time and effort. So it's another great question. It's as a special government employee, um, you do receive an hourly wage. Um, it's an hourly wage that uh, you would be happy with as a taxpayer. And we're, we are put up in a hotel um, the night before an ODAC meeting. Uh, again, it's a quality hotel that you would be happy with as a taxpayer. And because you're paid a certain amount per day, and you have a certain amount that you can charge to meals, when you go to ODAC, they actually don't serve you any food or drink. <laughs> you have to think about this beforehand, right? Even though like a bottled water, sorry, you can't have that because that would be extra, that would be considered double dipping. And I'll tell you briefly a story of, of, of my best friend from high school was a speechwriter for the second George Bush. And he talked about his experience the first time he was on Air Force One. He sat down because he had a fly to the first time George Bush was giving a speech that he had written so he could advise Bush and, and help with any last minute changes. He was on the plane, he sat down and the airline attendant came up to him and said, what would you like to eat? And he said, um, I don't know, what, what, are you, what are you serving? And, and the airline attendant said, this is Air Force One, you can have anything. And he said, wow, anything? He said, oh, I should, probably shouldn't get anything too outrageous. All right, I'll just have a grilled cheese sandwich. Had a grilled cheese sandwich. And he thought, wow, this is amazing. I'm on Air Force One eating a grilled cheese sandwich. Um, he, he goes to, you know, the speech is delivered. Everything goes well. He flies back home. And a month later, he, he, he gets a letter in the mail. He opens it up and it's a bill from Air Force One for $20 for a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yes. So as a taxpayer, this goes through multiple <laughs> levels of government employees. You, you don't get anything for free. Yeah, that's the most expensive grilled cheese sandwich she's ever had. I know? was going to say, I don't even think it had any, had any Gruyere cheese on it or, or whatnot. <laughs> you know, uh, so Mikhail, as I was reading the book, um, I loved the back and forth. So you, you give me a scene of what's happening in the FDA. I'm going to call this almost honestly a courtroom, frankly, uh, yeah. you know, with everything happening. And then you take me back to years and decades ago from when things were starting to happen and when the FDA was formed. 
I mean, how did you research all of this? I mean, you, you even talk about the FDA origin, origin and all of these things. Is it, um, I mean, I'm trying to understand, is it just all your own research? Did you have to hire somebody to even do research for you to understand all of these facts? Yeah. Um, so I, I will be honest with you, Chadi. This is the, um, this was a very hard book to write. And I could imagine. I, I I could imagine. There's a lot of this, like details from the from background that were really not easy to find. And what's you know what I found interesting is that the information about the history of the FDA I couldn't find consolidated in one book anywhere. Yeah. So I would pull uh, magazine articles, scientific journal articles. Um, I pulled original literature whenever I could find it. Um, and I found these incredibly marvelous little details. You know, this is going to be my my one foray into being like a Robert Caro as a historian, right? And getting to actually look at the original texts and 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 have these little finds. But as you can see from the book, it's I think I have hundreds of references. Um, yeah. and it took a lot of research. Um and kind of constant rechecking and i use the there's a newspaper standard of getting two sources to confirm something so i always tried to find two sources to confirm something when i when i found something i also loved how you described even the buildings and the hallways and the fda and so on like i felt i was really seeing the building and, and imagining it so um it's 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 really very nice to to actually uh see that so um a couple of things that, that struck me is um, you actually talk a lot about how patients were addressing the ODAC. Um, some of these were breast cancer patients, and there were people who are waiting outside and, and in the hearings, and I could only imagine, obviously, how challenging that is, because ultimately, you are a doctor, you are a treating physician, and there's a human as element of this that a drug may not be statistically significant. It may not actually do well in a randomized controlled trial, but it might help that these one or two patients, and to these one or two patients, it could be life-changing. I could only imagine how heartbreaking listening to this and how challenging this is to actually uh, learn decision. How do you, as a member of the ODAC, balance the science with humanity. I mean, there's a human element of this that it's very difficult. I mean, you're the same person. You can't really cut yourself in half. So uh, that's it, it, it's a great, uh, another great point, Chadi. Um, I listen to the testimonies from patients when I'm on ODAC. Um, I really do. I pay attention to them. Um, I, and I try to put myself in the shoes of the person who's talking. Um, imagine if you or I went up and had some microphone time at FDA, it's intimidating. And, and we're seasoned speakers. We speak at scientific meetings. We speak in front of colleagues. Um, we speak at meetings at our home institution. Uh, we may speak in front of patient advocacy groups. And each of these people felt strongly enough about how a drug had affected them that they took the time to take a train or a plane to one of the three Washington or Baltimore airports, and you know how intimidating that can be, um, then took 
a cab or an Uber or a Lyft to a hotel room and stayed overnight and then came to FTA headquarters and registered and got in front of a microphone and for three minutes told his or her story. That's a big deal to anybody. You and I can do it. You and I have been doing it for years. Most of these folks haven't. So I try to think about it from their perspective and what it is they're trying to communicate to us about the, this, the specialness of a drug, either positive or negative, uh, for that person. Now, during this, during the Avastin hearings, one of the FDA representatives made the point of also saying, you know, we haven't heard from the people who died on this trial. And she herself told an anecdote about a patient who had a brain bleed while taking Avastin and couldn't be there to speak for herself. So we also try to balance it with that. But those stories are meaningful. And at this particular hearing, not only did women bring their stories and told them incredibly eloquently, but some of them brought their photo albums and held their photo albums up for us so that we could see how they defined their quality of life on the drug. And that was, I mean, incredibly moving. And that is, that is, you know, you mentioned about the side effects that sometimes, I mean, if somebody dies, they're not going to be at the ODAC committee talking how well they've done but at the same time, you know, one of those things is, uh, you know, from a safety perspective, it's a good opportunity here to talk about direct-to-consumer advertising. It's, um, it is, you know, we all watch TV every so often, and you see these drugs being advertised to consumers, and you do actually talk about this quite a bit, and and I, I couldn't tell from reading whether you're pro or against uh, direct-to-consumer advertising. You provided facts. I saw that, and you actually put in numbers and figures, which is very helpful to readers. What are your personal thoughts about direct-to-consumer advertising? And I, I, I got to believe that the FDA could stop it if they want to, if you, if you don't think it's good. Yeah. Um, I am a fan of patients being informed. So I love, I guess, I don't know if I'm typical or atypical as a doctor. I love it when my patients say, you know, I was looking this up on Google and this is what I found. Great. Let's have a conversation about that. And let's talk about where truth may lie in online, um, in online information. We'd be fools to think that our patients aren't doing this anyway, whether they tell us or not. So if somebody brings it up, fantastic. That means that person feels comfortable enough with me to share that and to ask for my opinion of it. I, I, I applaud that. With direct-to-consumer advertising, we have to keep in mind that the FDA does check what is about to be advertised, but they're just checking it for truthfulness and on-label marketing. They're not checking it for tone. They're not checking it for the emotions that direct-to-consumer advertising may stir in somebody. Um, they're not checking it for, for example, the, the incident I bring up in the book, it, when a, um, a disease expert is hired by a company to put his or her name to something that looks like it might be a scientific article when in fact it's an advertisement and the tone of language that's used in that. And this was something I saw when I was editor-in-chief of Ash Clinical News um, I actually had to approve all the advertisements that went in the magazine as well. And some of these were submitted and they looked for all the world like one of the balanced, unbiased articles we would write for the magazine, but they weren't. 
they were in the same font, the same structure as one of our articles, but they were actually an advertisement from a drug company. And those we rejected and said, no way. So I'm all for people being informed. Um, and that doesn't just have to come from a physician or a nurse or a pharmacist. That can come from a variety of sources. But I don't think that necessarily people are always aware of how their emotions are being jiggered by a television commercial or a radio advertisement. We're one of two countries, I believe, that allow uh, direct-to-consumer advertising. So we're definitely in the minority amongst our peer countries, such as Europe and, and others. And and the safety usually are in very small fonts in the ads. Uh, and, and you do comment on that, actually. Let's talk about patient advocacy groups. You know, being as part of the ODAC, deciding on breast cancer drug, and we can probably both agree that breast cancer advocacy groups are uh, are one of the strongest in the country and uh, you know uh, for a variety of reasons and and they have funding but they have a lot of advocates and all of that how visible were they at the at these meetings and, and i mean how t- tell me your experience and interaction with the advocacy groups in, during that trial yeah uh, patient advocacy groups are amazing and i, I tell uh, some of the history I tell about the FDA is also about the history of patient advocacy groups and how they, it was, it's because of groups like ACT UP during the HIV AIDS era that we even have um, PDUFA as a payment mechanism to get drugs approved quicker. And that's why we have accelerated approval. So advocacy groups are, are a force of nature. And I felt as if you know, groups like ACT UP really wrote the playbook for how advocacy groups could move government and could move legislation so that drugs were approved um, for desperately ill patients where prior to that governments had been either recalcitrant to act um, or had um, acted not in the best interest of patients. And you talk about the Abigail Alliance as well a lot. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Abigail Alliance was part of this and spoke at the Avastin hearings and eventually were present at the right to try legislation that um, Trump signed into law. So and this was you know, something that was born out of a horrible, horrible tragedy of, you know, Abigail herself was a college student who had a terrible head and neck cancer and died from it and could not try a drug that was uh, on clinical trials at the time. Uh, she wasn't eligible for the trials and couldn't get the drug outside of trials. And that's really what spurred her father to create the Abigail Alliance. That part of the book, I will tell you, is probably the most direct reflection of writing this during the pandemic. Because, Chadi, we were seeing this happening in real time. We were seeing the government that I felt at least, I, I don't know if you agree, was not acting in the best interest of public health and wasn't making clear recommendations. Uh, we had people who were given um, misadvice. Um, we had a, a failure of leadership. And it was very, very similar to what was happening when HIV and AIDS were just being discovered. So, it, you know, I felt the same kind of urgency with vaccine development and with public health communication as I'm sure people did in the 1980s when they were being diagnosed with uh, HIV and AIDS. 
And it takes patient advocacy groups sometimes to move governments. And it was these protests from ACT UP, even on the FDA campus, that finally led to their having a seat at the table and their having influence over drugs, making it to patients quicker. So I think patient advocacy groups are wonderful. And what I hope I was able to portray in the book as well is that patient advocacy groups aren't always in favor of drugs and have a balanced view of that. And we heard this actually last week at ODAC where patient advocacy groups came up and said, you know what, we actually don't want a drug approved that's gonna give false hope to patients. Yeah, yeah, that is. And I was wondering, I was trying to, because you spend a lot of time talking about uh, the HIV uh, and AIDS and and now it's crystallizing a little bit better. You are using that pretty much specifically for the advocacy to demonstrate to, to 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 explain how important that is. You also use thalidomide uh, history as part of how safety became so important. And uh, uh, I have to say, um, Mikhail, one of the things I really um, liked, and I'll tell you what I'm getting at. Um, sometimes I don't know if it's being lucky or good, which one is better. I'll say I'd rather be lucky. But you talk about the thalidomide and we talk about how awful it was and all of these things. But then you take us through how it got approved for how it got uh, into myeloma. And and literally, unless I misread, it was you bring in Bart Barlogi to the, to, to the equation. Right. And it was one patient that he had that had an amazing response, I guess, and because of that, he said, okay, I'm going to keep studying this and, and look where we are right now with myeloma. But you could have imagined different scenario where he's had one patient with that amazing response. He said, it's just pure luck because all of the others before did not respond. I mean, you talk about other patients he had that did not respond. So it, it's, it's, was it pure luck that we're here with thalidomide and uh, subsequently other ones? So, yeah, you're you're talking about the notion of um, serendipity and scientific success. And there was a book that was published, boy, I think it was in the 1980s, called The Structures of Scientific Revolution by, by an author named Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N. And in it, and this was, I mean, obviously for me, it was kind of a seminal read when I was like, you know, a sophomore in college, because I'm still quoting it. it. Kuhn talks about how in medical in scientific education and medical education we learn that discovery a led to b led to c led to d when in reality with a, a ton of scientific discoveries discovery a led to x and that led to y and then that dead ended but then somebody discovered z and that led to b and someone realized b was connected to a and then it moved forward here it's all over the map so um, I think there's a lot out there that has to do somewhat with serendipity. I think people believing in themselves, um, and certainly Dr. Barlogi is a good example of uh, somebody who has a strong personality and believes in himself. And here again, there was some stroke of patient advocacy uh, because it was the uh, wife who was a, an attorney of a, a young man, I think he was 38 when he died of multiple myeloma, who was calling around trying to find something that could treat her husband. And she actually wound up calling Judah Folkman directly because she had heard about his work with vascular endothelial growth factors. And he was the one who referred her to Barlogi. She talked to Barlogi who agreed to treat her husband. He unfortunately was one of the failures, but I think it lit a candle. So it's, you know, it's this marvelous blend in this instance of 
somebody who's a passion, two people who are passionate researchers in Barlogi and Folkman, a patient advocate, and then a resurrection from the dead of a medication um, that actually led to the Kafavra-Harris Amendment of 1962, where drugs had to be effective for the first time in the United States. It's really a fascinating story. I mean, I really want every listener and everybody just to, I mean, the, 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 to really um, read this and just realize how that story impacted the decisions to focus on safety as well. And then subsequently, what happened three decades later, where you, you know, when Bart Barlogi was able to bring him and his colleagues thalidomide, which is no easy task because this is exactly the drug that was you know, all of this uh, uh, bad, bad issues. And, and as part of that, you also talk a lot about um, clinical trials and you clearly want to educate the reader about how clinical trials were conducted. And, and I learned, for example, that the cooperative groups were established in 1955. I did not actually know that this is when they were, when they were established. But interestingly, when you describe the phase one, phase two, phase three, one of the things I would have wanted to read, and I didn't read, is do you really think this is the future of clinical trials? And I'll tell you why I ask. The description of phase one studies, three plus three, if somebody has an issue, you add three, all of these things, just sounds so not 2022, 2023, where we should do better with pharmacogenomics, pharmacodynamics, I mean, all of these things that we know it seems to me giving a drug and increasing the dose until the person just pukes their heart away is not, should be the way. And I know what you what you did, it described the current state, but at least for me, I did not see what does Dr. Securis think, how clinical trials should be conducted in the contemporary era. Yeah, the, you know, the notion of phase one trials, and I've seen this play out in real time. You, you and I both participated in early phase trials where you look at the results and you kind of squint a little bit and change the lighting and look at the AE <laughs> and like, maybe this is responsible. Is it close to a response? Okay, so we're going to go forward with this dose in this patient population. It's ludicrous, right? Right. It's We're, we're basing drug development on a gut instinct and anecdote. So I do think there's an opportunity here. As, as you mentioned, there are a variety of data points that we can pull in, not just safety in an early phase study, but we can start to look at efficacy. We can start to look at how a drug behaves in the body. And um, probably the best approach is going to be to use artificial intelligence and machine learning approaches to guide drug development and have it not as discrete. This is a phase one study. This is a phase two. This is a phase three but as a continuous process of changing um, probabilities and types of patients who are enrolled to trials until we get it right. Yeah. And, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, the FDA has control over $1 trillion of, like, drugs, you know, of drugs that they actually control in terms of making decisions. I mean, that is unbelievable. That figure really blew me away. Drugs are drugs are big business. And one of the points that I make during the book, and I learned this in real time, this is you know one of the fun parts about doing research on something is that you kind of hear something and it's a cool story and then you go and research it to see if it's really true. And it, it turns out this is really true that when ODAC is meeting a 
about a given drug company, that drug company suspends trading during the ODAC meeting because the markets become so volatile with every comment that somebody makes in real time. So imagine that. The decisions that are being made can sway markets to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars during a four-hour period, during a four-hour ODAC meeting. So this is big business. And when we have a live meeting, a lot of the people who tune in are really from the financial sector. Uh, and we, at one point I was on ODAC, there was some, I forget what it was, there was some website that was open in real time and invited financial advisors to participate. And there were hundreds of them who were on while we were talking about a drug in real time. And they were providing odds in real time of whether or not we would vote to approve a drug. But, but you also actually also mentioned why that is, which is really important for listeners and readers to, to, to recognize. I mean, companies have spent a lot of time, effort, and money into getting that drug to market. In fact, you have a very beautiful figure and graph in the book uh, that talks about drug discovery almost from 8 to 17 years until the drug gets there. For listeners, it's figure 3.2. But this is this is I mean that's I mean that's a lot of time, sweat, blood, and tears. It it it, it really is. Um, it's um, it, it's a tremendous amount of investment in research and development. The um, I think the challenge that we have as consumers um, and as stewards of what drugs get prescribed, because we are stewards of 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 drug use, is trying to discern how much drug pricing right now reflects recoup of research and development costs versus profit chasing. And I don't get as much into this, Chadi. I'm not, I don't fancy myself an expert in pharmacoeconomics. Um, and it's a, it's a book unto itself to, to talk about that. So to add that to this would have been another 85,000 words. No, I, I agree. Um, I agree. I, I think it wasn't the topic, uh, but it's certainly you, you bring it. You 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 got me thinking, which is as a writer, that's what you want the reader to kind of scratch their head and 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 get to think about the problem. That's great. Yeah. Glad so so uh, I I have a couple couple of things, and uh, and I know I have to let you go, but bef before that, just a couple of things, Mikhail, because it did you did get me also scratch my head a little bit. As I was reading, and I, I, I could tell that there are certain parameters you are putting on as an ODAC committee, as well as you, as a as an individual contributor, to the to what it's going to take until you decide on approving the drug. Uh, and you talk about overall survival. You beautifully actually mentioned that. You bring a couple of examples, which was very uh, nice. You talk about quality of life and, and all of that stuff that are really important. And that was the meeting in 2011 for Avastin. But but over the past 10, 12 years, there have been a lot of drugs that did get approved without evidence of demonstrating overall survival and without evidence of improving quality of life simply because of progression-free survival. And I could tell that you, as a not as a writer and an investigator, I could totally tell you you were critical of that. You were critical of progression-free survival, so I, I could say that. But I can't help it. Part of me is thinking, if I take the ECOC twenty one hundred that was presented to you guys 
over a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And I submitted today to the FDA of 2022-2023, Avastin will be approved. I think you're probably right. Um, and what we've, so let me first talk a little bit about progression-free survival. Chadi, when, when I look at an endpoint in a clinical trial, again, I'm going to reflect back on my parents. How would I explain that to a patient when I'm talking about informed consent with a patient? How do you justify progression-free survival? And I still struggle with this. And that actually came up during the hearing itself. So I'm sitting four feet away from a woman. She has metastatic breast cancer. She has few other options available. And I say to her, well, I have this drug Avastin. And if I combine it with Taxol, then you're going to live without your breast cancer returning a few months more, but you're not going to live longer. You're not going to live any longer than if I didn't give you the drug. And your quality of life is not going to be any better. You're not going to feel any better. How is that informed consent? How would, would I say yes to a drug like that? And I'm not sure that I would. I mean, I hope, you know, God forbid I have cancer. Any of us could get it. Um, would I say yes to a drug that allowed me to live longer without my cancer returning, but didn't allow me to live longer? And I don't know that I could say yes to that. So what so, happened in the past decade for the FDA then? Why did they change? Because see, yeah. it's Rick Pazder who's still there. And I think, I don't know, uh, some people either they love him or they don't think, they think he could do better. I mean, I don't know. He's, and I have this in the, in the book itself, a couple of just incredible quotes from Rick about how he's very aware of his public perception <laughs> and how he basically, uh, he can't win. Uh, and I really have a tremendous amount of, of respect for Rick. I, I think he's brilliant. And I think he's a great team leader. His group really believes in the job they're doing. That's And, and that's a reflection of a great leader. Um, but I, I think what happened, and I, I touch on this a little bit in the epilogue, I, I, I know what happened. Um, we had a president who declared he wanted more of a free market approach to use of drugs in the marketplace. And we had an FDA um, commissioner who was brought on who said, I believe in a free market approach to drugs being available. So that was the directive from above. As a result, we saw this juggernaut of approvals of drugs based on interim markers of clinically meaningful benefits, things like duration of response, progression-free survival, but not on overall survival or improvement in quality of life. And now what's happening, and this was absolutely predictable, is these drugs like the PI3 kinase inhibitors are now having to face the music. The so-called confirmatory studies aren't confirming or the follow-up trials aren't confirming. And little by little, these drugs are being pulled from the market. This mm -hmm. was 100% predictable five, seven years ago. But, and you know, I mean, this is not a political show. I, this was going on before 2016. I mean, this was, I mean, the, the sur use of surrogate endpoints and things like that was, I don't, I, I don't, I don't assign that to honestly to a cabinet or an administration. Maybe it was worse under one versus another, but I've seen it, the use of uh, surrogate endpoints, you know, regardless, frankly, who has been uh in in administration but uh but i have not done that research so i cannot i'm this is just my own observation sure if, if you look and, and and i'm glad you brought that up because i am not i don't tend to be political either but <laughs> what we saw is um ex accelerated approval 
requires that an interim marker for clinically meaningful benefit, I, I shouldn't say requires, allows for an interim marker for clinically meaningful benefit to be used as an endpoint, as long as a follow-up trial uses either a clinically meaningful endpoint like overall survival or confirms the magnitude that was initially seen, okay? that is, Those are the rules of accelerated approval. Accelerated approval is wonderful. It's magical for certain drugs and has gotten these drugs to patients years before it would have gotten there if uh, they waited for, for for regular approval. So that isn't the point I'm making at all. I think using interim markers of clinically meaningful benefit for accelerated approval is standard and should be used. That's the purpose of the legislation. My issue is the rate of these approvals over the past five to seven years has skyrocketed compared to where it was before. Because remember, this legislation went into effect in 1992, right? And then cancer basically took over a decade later. Like almost everything that was received accelerated approval was cancer. But the rate at which these approvals occurred past five to seven years has been mind-boggling. Yeah. No, th th there's no question about it. Um, so my last couple of questions um, is um, we we all have faced COVID-19 over the past several years. Hopefully we're way out. I think we are. Do you think the FDA, I mean, how do you, you've worked very closely with the FDA. I mean, um, and the FDA has been using emergency use authorization here and there uh, with vaccines and all. overall, how, what, what grade would you give the FDA over the past couple of years in terms of how they handled uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? Boy, um, so what grade would I give them? I want to ask you the same question. Um, yeah. I'll, an, I'll answer it. I've been vocal yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we have had miraculous vaccines uh, that have come to light and have gotten approval. I think the FDA was under a lot of pressure to uh, approve things pretty quickly. Um, vaccine approval is a little bit funky because it then requires the CDC to meet and also buy into it. Uh, and there have been a lot of political pressures around this. So I think given the melee of COVID-19 and all of those pressures, I'm going to give the FDA B. That actually was my grade. I would give them a B. I think it was very difficult to navigate political pressure on both sides. I mean, there's so much politicization that occurred and um, I think it's probably the best they can do under the circumstances. So my last question to you is what lessons learned as you wrote the book, um, things you, you learned that um, completely blew, you just did not know at all. And um, uh, because there's so much, there's, a, there's a, a lot of nice story. You're a very good storyteller, really okay. very, 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 very good storyteller. And I really want everybody to read this book because I can, it's a very, it's a good story that takes us through the backs, back, the hallways of the FDA and everything going on. What, what did you learn as an author you know, um, I learned the history of the FDA, which I really didn't know. Um, I learned individual stories that went into it. Um, I really, I went into this with the premise that the FDA's history informs the decisions it makes today. And I really do believe that that was reinforced, that the FDA is focused first and foremost on safety, 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 and then on efficacy. Um, and I learned just how hard a job it is to to be in the FDA, given the many, many pressures that they're under, um, both from patients, pharmaceutical industry, government, 
uh, healthcare providers and how they have to thread a needle with this. Um, I suspect they are terribly under-resourced for the job that they really want to do as well. And um, the FDA is an organic place. Uh, I'm looking forward to how it's going to evolve over the next 10 years. One of my favorite quotes that you put in the book is from Rick Bazer. It's like, you know, we can't please everybody. Like, we, you can't win with this job. <laughs> like he always yeah. said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he makes, um, I mean, he makes quite a, uh, quite an analogy to, um, you know, war crimes <laughs> yeah. with uh, with yeah. the job that they have to do. Well, uh, look, I, I, I loved it. I really did. It was, it was, I've learned so much. I, you always can tell a good book from a, if it's, first of all, it's a nice storytelling, which is very important. So you just, it's a page flipping thing, but, um, I also learned a lot and I had no idea what you guys went through for this Avastin thing. Like I literally felt there's really, there's a documentary here to be made, Mikhail. Well, it's, you know, it was honestly, it was like it was made for TV. It was so dramatic. I can't even, you know, even I, I tried to portray it in the book, but in real time going through this, you know, walking into the great room and seeing this scrum of reporters just waiting. And then, you know, again, you hear from people I and mean, we were on national news. Yeah, I mean, this would be... This will be so. Who would play you, uh, yourself, David Steensma, or George Clooney? You've got you've got the options of you play yourself, George Clooney, or David Steensma. <laughs> I think either David Steensma or George Clooney would be a step up from me. <laughs> I take either. <laughs> so the book is currently available, right? I did pre-order. I mean, we're taping this today on uh, September uh, twenty-five. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, I did. I pre-ordered back in in August or July, oh, whenever you. you posted it. But I believe it was supposed to arrive this week. So when is it available? Just tell listeners when it's available. Yeah, so, it's uh, it is the publication date is Tuesday, September twenty seventh. So oh, it's literally. So I go. Uh, we will air this podcast episode in a timely fashion. And um, anything else I should have asked you? I forgot to ask you anything. I need to. Uh, Maybe I forgot. I mean, there's a lot in this book, 300 plus pages, but anything I forgot? No, Chadi, you were fabulous. You were really, really great. It's such a delight to be on your podcast. Well, congratulations. I hope it's a hit. And like I said, um, you know, don't sell yourself short. I mean, George Clooney has got nothing on you. <laughs> now, David Steensman, maybe, but you know. <laughs> Well, this was amazing, delightful, and great. I really enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Mikhail Sikiris, and um, uh, it was just wonderful to have him on today's podcast about his new book, Drugs in the FDA. Uh, this is really a book that I would recommend everybody to read. It is. It was wonderful uh, to talk to him about the details of the book and, and, and all of these, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. So go ahead, read the book, buy the book, and let me know what you think. I will be writing my book review very shortly. And, uh, uh, you know, don't forget to uh, subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, and uh, refer your friends and colleagues to the podcast. That will be absolutely marvelous and wonderful. Watch my podcast on YouTube. 
Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And don't forget also to visit my website, uh, www.shadinabhan.com and let me know what you think. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Steve Jobs, the late CEO of Apple. My favorite things in life don't cost any money. It's really clear that the most precious resource we all have is time. Until next time.